One Redley, Gridley. Welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for February 5th, 2022. We our intro music is Leonard Cohen's iconic democracy, which uh, is hard to beat as an introduction for the show that we hope um, exemplifies the values that he put into his artwork um you're listening to kfgm 105.5 low power fm missoula community radio live streaming on 1055kfgm.org no punctuation just four numbers and four character four letters and now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Neil Young's favorite Spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio by and for the 99%. And with uh, Leonard Cohen today <laughs> and Jim is Sue Kirschmeyer resident and Mark Anderlich. Hello. So this is a mountain time zone show today. It, it's all it's all Montana all the time. Too. Yeah, that's it. We broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. Uh, but we are still recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which are located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people as well. And despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part, by wearing masks when you are inside in public. And now it's N95 masks, which are not, <laughs> not as nice as those cloth ones. But anyway, uh, and by getting vaccinated and by frequently washing your hands, this show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. 
We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And once again, we give old Mick a shout out as he is at home right now. Hey, Mick. Yes. We miss you, Mick. You're the qualified sound man. <laughs> You're welcome to take your job back anytime. Our, our word of the week is an acronym. So that tells you it's something military or governmental coming up. <laughs> NATO or North Atlantic Treaty Organization, simply NATO, which isn't really a word, but an acronym. And uh, it's, of course, four words, but we are talking about the military here, which loves acronyms. It sure does, Jim. And how about this one? I, I, I looked on the internet for some of these acronyms. Wow. Uh, USA JFK SWCSDF. That's a real acronym, which that's means not a Welsh road sign, right? That's a <laughs> that's, that's a, exactly yes. right. That's a NAVOPS acronym, which I had to familiarize myself with. So I get the joke and then some. <laughs> yes, yes. <clears throat> well, and, and that one stands for US Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School dining facility, which of course, that's the chow hall at Fort Bragg school for special operations. (laughs) Mm, Sure. It's full of Southern favorites. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Looking online, there is hemp, um, which in Missoula is always a timely topic. Yes. And one that that garners attention, uh, but, and it's not what we think it means high altitude electromagnetic pulse yeah another online one is pov or personally owned vehicle yeah in normal language that means your car truck motorcycle or bicycle you know bicycle which i'm personally encouraging you so that's that's your pov right you're right 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 but i'd rather it be a um collectively owned light rail system or bus there you go nice nice segue jim i like that um hey we're all professionals here (laughs) trying to live up to the standard that mix it that's it that's it well and believe it or not there is also an acronym that describes acronyms (laughs) tla which means three letter acronym (laughs) so and we're not making this up that's uh, no and what you're not making up is that that was in a committee for six years (laughs) Before they got buy-in from all the stakeholders. So, so back to the word of the week, which happens to be a four-letter acronym. So it doesn't fit fit the cue for it's that. not a TL and NATO is not a TLA. No. Yeah. Or TLC. Or TLC. <laughs> uh, NATO. What is NATO? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Jim. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a show. (laughs) Um, It's been in the news a lot lately. And as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, a a professional of the highest amateur rank. um, (laughs) Or an amateur of the highest professional rank, but uh, either way. Uh, He has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia, 
that in which follows each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information so the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat and i, I just say as a note about nato i saw there was absolutely nothing critical of nato in the wikipedia so i i imagine that there's been a lot of uh, uh editing out of uh, <laughs> criticism but um <clears throat> That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, is an intergovernmental military alliance between 27 European countries, two North American wow. countries, and one Eurasian country. The organization wow. implements the North Atlantic Treaty that was signed on April 4th, 1949, at the end of World War II. NATO constitutes a system of collective security, whereby its independent member states agree to mutual defense in response to an attack by any external party. The NATO headquarters are located in Brussels, Belgium, while the headquarters of the Allied Command Operation is near Mons, Belgium, end quote. So getting back to the beginning, how did NATO start? Again, According to Wikipedia, on March 4th, 1947, the Treaty of Dunkirk was signed by France and the United Kingdom as a treaty of alliance and mutual assistance in the event of a possible attack by Germany or the Soviet Union in the aftermath of World War II. In 1948, this alliance was expanded to include the Benelux countries, which is Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, uh, in the form of the Western Union, that's what it was called, and also referred mm -hmm. to as the Brussels Treaty Organization, or BTO. Oh. Yeah, um, at TLA as well. Yes, and, uh, and not BLT. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was established by the Treaty of Brussels. Um, talk for a, talks for a new military alliance, which could also include North America, resulted in the signature of the North Atlantic Treaty on April 4th, 1949, by the member states of the Western Union, plus the United States, Canada, Portugal, Italy, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. Wow. So, uh, that uh, to keep the Americans in meant to keep the U.S. military in Europe. Well, yeah. And so what oh, I that, that was the that was the core mission that you um, th that was. Uh, uh, and and mm -hmm. I'll go back to that. Um, after Germany was defeated in World War Two, many in Europe did not want to see Germany now divided into East and West become another military power to cause a third world war. And many feared the resurgent Soviet Union, who had been allies of the U.S., Great Britain and France to defeat Hitler. As uh, And as you mentioned, Jim, as the British Lord Ismay, the first general secretary of NATO, so pithily said about NATO's core mission, it's to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Ooh, that's pretty pithy. That is pithy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to keep no, the Americans in. I think you can make an acronym out of that, too. But uh, uh, Yeah. Hmm. It, I, uh, well, I, that'll be my homework project <laughs> during the interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in many ways, it seemed to have succeeded in that mission. 
Yeah, it, it kept the Americans militarily involved in Europe. Um, it kept the Germans down. Germany has not started a war uh, since then. <clears throat> and um, keeping the Russians out, uh, maybe um, to, to some degree, that's that's actually uh, right. ha- has done that. Um, one can argue right. that it did succeed in keeping the Soviet Union out, but not as successfully. Again, from Wikipedia, <clears throat> the North Atlantic Treaty was largely, sorry, my cat is uh, trying to editorialize here. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> the felonious feline again the felonious feline you they're sneaky you know you gotta watch yeah them. sure um, are. well you got um, nine lives you can work your game <laughs> yeah, that's right um the north atlantic treaty was largely dormant until the korean war initiated the establishment of nato to implement it by means of an integrated military structure this included the formation of supreme headquarters allied powers europe ah which, which acronym is shape Yeah, can't forget that one. And in 1951, which adopted the Western Union's military structures and plans, West Germany joined NATO in 1955 and was allowed to rearm, which led to the formation of the rival Warsaw Pact during the Cold War. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. So it was seven or so years after NATO was formed when West Germany joined and was allowed to rearm and when NATO rejected the Soviet membership that the Soviet Union felt it had to counter the perceived threat from NATO and form a counter-alliance, the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, and I, um, it, it's not well known. I think I've got it um, you know, later on in um, this dialogue, but actually in 19... 19- 54, the foreign minister Molotov of the Soviet Union actually mm-hmm. made a proposal. Now we know he made a proposal to um, NATO to join NATO at that point. So, that's astounding. Yeah. And um, that's not long after Stalin died, but Molotov is still in the picture. I think so. Yeah. And I think yeah. it was crucial. I wish I was right. older then, so it would make sense to me. <laughs> it's history that predates me. Yes. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, it appears, you know, what happened was that, um, it's not hard to see how the Soviet Union felt threatened by NATO at this time, since number one, they weren't allowed into NATO. Number two, they rearmed Germany and they had, uh, an alliance, a military alliance on their, uh, Western, you know, border, uh, not so much the yeah. border, but uh, in other uh, countries that they had occupied or helped, you know, foment uh, some kind of mm-hmm. communist revolution in um, as buffer states. So, gotcha. Uh, so they, you know, they, they were also, uh, you know, and it certainly helps explain the Soviets' pursuit of nuclear weapons at that time. Yeah, and <laughs> they were not. They were not friend on friendly terms with communist-led China either. Uh, they were about about as yeah an enemy as as others you know so yeah which um looking back on it's interesting that the uh the patriotic people of the time saw marxist leninism as uh, as some coherent cohesive monolith that was going to devour the world when in reality uh, you know they had it, it was you know 
Bustler's 28 flavors. Right. You know, right. Everybody had their own spin and was trying to solve per, you know, yep. economic yep. and social problems in their own sphere. And even despite all that, though, during the Cold War, NATO engaged in no overt military operations, none, zero, mm. which actually gave credence to, you know, to many people to the military policy of deterrence. Ah, so you think that since they didn't do anything, that must mean what we did was the correct thing. And we got the response that we desired. I, I, yeah, I, that's that's, uh, that's how a lot of yeah, that's how a lot of people would. Yeah. That, right. You know, so. Oh, yeah. Sue. Well, just, I mean, it's the bit of reading I've been doing since knowing I'd come on the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're having a positive influence on one listener. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, this. The idea of like common deterrence, um, I, I didn't realize that the Soviet Union had applied to be part of NATO itself, mm-hmm. which kind of, um, it's, it's and, and that idea of the common deterrence, that's something that's um, they're looking for yeah. again now. Well, right. Really, it, 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 it's totally parallel to what's changes my whole, mm-hmm. what the heck. Um, right. right. Uh, it's just a whole different idea of what a country would do on that whole European side of their country. I mean, it spans across from Europe to Asia. So um, trying to just settle things down. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there was Russian. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was going to say that um, there was uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a whole bunch of documents that were released. And um, one of those documents was the, the, the proposal that Molotov had proposed to the Soviet Presidium to, um, to join NATO because, and, and then they proposed it to NATO and NATO turned it down for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. But what, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it sort of, uh, they, they thought they were going to mess with NATO's purpose. Um, and it kind of gets to where some people are saying where the solution to the Ukraine situation, the Russian situation, as it were, is to have this sort of uh, common defense uh, across Europe, a common, you know, so mm-hmm. that that they all pledge not to invade each other. Right. And if they do, then, you know, everyone else is going to gang up on them. And, and so why not include, you know, the Soviet Union in that? That's you know that that was the reasoning right because gotcha because as we're going to see later a lot of other commentators are feeling like um uh russia was invaded by the west during the during the bolshevik revolution um and um and was uh, uh you know invaded by hitler's germany in world war ii very massively mm-hmm. and, and they had um, a treaties ah, and they had a treaty that. right exactly yeah von ribbentrop and yeah um, molotov had said okay we're on the same team and and i think i think there's a really deep i mean as we're going to find out there's a really deep sense in russia about look they don't want to they don't like being invaded and they want to maintain <laughs> you know uh way more than uh you know empire building at this point Mm-hmm. That's maybe not the case back. That wasn't the case back in World War II, but I think today I th- think that is more the case. But we'll have we'll have some information about why 
that is the case, right? Or why lots of people think, or not yeah. lots, but why some cooler heads think that that's exactly the case. So, um, yeah, yeah, well, they certainly had in their rearview mirror at, in that time um, the you know lattice work of treaties that at the dawn of World War One and how it uh, made things worse instead of better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's for sure. Um, Sue, Sue, you're going to say something too, or. Well, just the whole, um, just the evolution then of how NATO has moved from being Europe based and less aggressive to it's, it, it's changed mm -hmm. now as far as its military right. engagements and stuff around the world. Right. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that kind of the watershed moment is when the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, well, when Germany reunites in 1990 and when the Soviet Union dissolves uh, in 1991, that's kind of a watershed year for NATO because, uh, you know, at that point, what's the purpose of NATO, right? Um, right. As, as it had been when we grew up, it was about we had to contain communism in the Soviet Union, and they were very aggressive, and they were going to, you know, we, we were all going to wear oh, red yeah. diapers if we if we didn't watch out. Right. right? We didn't we didn't have uh, or Mao jackets, depending or, on who or yeah, a little yeah. right, exactly. Actually, Nehru jackets were kind of big. Oh, yeah, that's time when true. I was, but they were they were non-aligned nations. Yeah, that, that was a non-aligned jacket, yes. which which would be a wonderful topic. <laughs> in the future as well, because yes, there yeah. were attempts to avoid playing with the bear or the eagle. Right. Come right. up with something different. So what's, uh, let's do a, a roll call on who the NATO nations are today. Yeah. Well, up to the reunification of Germany in 1990 and the disintegration of the communist led Soviet union, 1991, these were the countries in NATO. Okay. The U.S., Canada, those are the two North American countries, mm -hmm. Great Britain, West Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, the Benelux nations, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Greece, and Turkey. Um, NATO expansion after the 1991 uh, included much of Eastern Europe, which included almost all of the former Warsaw Pact nations. So if keeping the Soviets militarily out of Europe was a primary purpose of NATO and the Soviet Union was no longer existing, you know, what is the purpose of NATO today? That's an excellent question, Jim. And, um, and it's, the answer is more tortured and difficult than, um, mm -hmm. than, what, than, than the simple acronym we had. Um, since, the since 1991, NATO has engaged in uh, several military actions. NATO intervened in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo during the war there in the early 1990s. Okay, that, that's in Europe, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, part of, part of the justification for that, that was kind of controversial too, although, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Serbians and, and allies were uh, committing atrocities, right? Actually, mm -hmm. all sides were committing atrocities, but uh, they wanted to oh, put yeah. an end to that of war in Europe. Um, and yep. uh, the other, the only other military activities NATO has been engaged in was thwarting pirates in the Gulf of Aden in 2009. That's nowhere near Europe. And NATO also engaged. 
in other more controversial military actions, including the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. Yeah, and they certainly didn't have anything to do with containing communism, right. containing threats to international hegemony of the <laughs> right. part oil industry. And um, I'll add that the only place I've gotten to spend a lot of time in Europe is Bosnia. <laughs> so, and not really as a tourist. So, I, you know, this, these things are very real to me. And I spent a lot of time talking to, to people getting mm -hmm. a sense of what was going on. Mm -hmm. So if, what, if keeping how, the Soviets, how, Oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was going to ask you, well, how um, did you, was that after the, um, the wars there that you were there or before? Um, just after like, like the cars that were bombed in the street were, were still too hot to hitch a tow hook on and drag wow. and drag away. So uh, it, it was a, it was a fractious and um, frustrating time for a lot of people. Yeah. So it what was, what you was know, healing? Did, did ahead, you talk? Man. Did did you talk to any people? Had any opinions about NATO's intervention at all or U.S. intervention? And in yeah, just about everybody. And uh, they they saw it as a struggle between two two despots and thugs, uh, <laughs> you know, some Milosevic, and also Franjo Tuđman, the mm -hmm. um, uh, bad guy that tried to make the world like him in Croatia. Mm -hmm. So Tuđman sort of won out. Yeah, but uh, he was not um, Gandhi. Yeah. Did, did, did the intervention by NATO and, and U.S. forces, did, did that help Tujman um, prevail? Um, this is ironic, but the Ukrainians sent lots and lots of help to Tujman. And, I, and uh, like three weeks before I arrived, they sent like 100,000 troops. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, which made absolutely no sense to me. I, I think a, I might think the backstory was that an invasion of Croatia was imminent. And the, uh, a lot of that country is just a little narrow split. It's sort of like the Gambia along the Zambezi River or whatever. It, um, so that it would have been really easy to push those people into the water, you know, Dunkirk style. Mm. Wow, interesting. Maybe... Um, we do a show on that. That's that is a really complicated situation there. In the um, when you the know, Soviet Union fell, I mean, it, this was the breakup of Yugoslavia, and exactly, so. yeah. I, and um, well, Tito died. He went and said, "Okay, I'm just going to die now and make it even more exciting for everybody." <laughs> <laughs> and and that that was going on concurrently. And. Um, Actually, everybody from damn Rebecca West to uh, Robert Kaplan have written eloquently about what a mess, the, you know, Southeastern Europe is and uh, how the more you learn about it, the less you understand about it. Yeah, <laughs> I can believe that. I can believe that. So, so uh, uh, you know, many of these areas are nowhere near Europe. Imagine that. Yeah, that's uh, the the NATO military exercises exactly, and uh, I think um, 
Maybe they need to expand the acronym by a couple of letters. Maybe so. <laughs> um, so, um, and, you know, uh, you know, it's a fair question to say that after 1991, when NATO massively expanded, incorporated a lot of the Warsaw Pact, former allies of Russia, right, the Soviet Union, um, which aren't equivalent, but, you know, for sake of argument. Um, and um, <clears throat> some people think, well, yeah, it, it, it kept the peace. Um, but I found this article by Stephen Walt, a columnist at the Establishment Journal. There is no more Establishment Journal than foreign policy. Oh. And, um, and he's also, uh, Stephen Walt is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in Foreign Policy on July 26 and 2018, Chief among the myths about NATO is the idea that NATO expansion would create a vast zone of peace in Europe and give the alliance a new and lofty purpose in the wake of the Cold War. It hasn't quite worked out that way. For starters, NATO expansion poisoned relations with Russia and played a central role in creating conflicts between Russia and Georgia and Russia and Ukraine. How about that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the only reason, of course, and I'm not saying Moscow's responses were legal, proper, justified, or based on an accurate perception of NATO's intent. I'm only suggesting that Russia's response was not surprising, especially mm -hmm. in light of Russians, Russia's own history and the George H.W. Bush administration's earlier yes. pledges not to move NATO, quote, one inch eastward following German reunification. The architects of expansion may have genuinely believed that moving NATO eastward posed no threat to Russia. Unfortunately, <laughs> Russia... <laughs> yeah, just like Russian missiles in Cuba had, had nothing to do with the United States. No, no, it was purely, purely for... Right. Uh, actually, they you, were trying to... They just to, wanted to have soft duty for Russell Mission and you, you know, missile engineers so they could you, bask in the sun and play baseball. That's right, on the, on the beaches of Cuba, exactly. Um, so um, unfortunately, Russia's lead leaders never got the memo and wouldn't have believed it if they had. Furthermore, expanding NATO increased the number of places the alliance was formally obligated to defend, most notably the Baltic states, but without, which is uh, Estonia, Lithuania, and... Estonia, oh, Latvia. Latvia, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the poor um, guy in the middle that everybody overlooks. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The the middle the middle child, I guess. Um, right. Um, but they had further expanded NATO's increased number of places the alliance was formally obligated to defend, but without significantly increasing the resources available to perform that task. Once again, proponents of expansion assumed these commitments would never have to be honored, only to wake up and discover they had written a blank check that might be difficult to cover. And we now know mm -hmm. that expansion brought in some new members whose commitment to liberal democracy has proved <laughs> to be fairly shallow. Boy, uh, that is the most polite <laughs> <laughs> phrase. You can tell the guy's a diplomat. Yes. And, and this diplomat is, wannabe. Yeah. again, this is the prime establishment journal on foreign policy. Yeah, I know. Foreign policy. 
Um, Thank God it's free or I'd never read it. <laughs> well, and so reading between the lines, you're right. I mean, they, they don't, they speak diplom- diplomatically, but that's a pretty, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's pretty strong. This situation may not be a fatal flaw insofar as NATO has tolerated non-democratic members, in other words, Turkey, in the past, (laughs) but it undermines the proponent's claim that NATO is a security community based on shared democratic values and an essential element of a liberal world order. Yeah, Turkey really needed those U2s. They were were vital to their uh, foreign policy and (laughs) economic well-being. So NATO may be a hammer looking for a nail, not the same hammer that's in next to the sickle. The sickle. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, you should be a foreign policy analyst, Jim. Um, and you have some good. Actually, comp- I tried. <laughs> I passed the foreign policy exam. <laughs> um, you know, you you have some good company with foreign policy journal columnist uh, Stephen Walt. Again, who wrote in that July 26, 2018 article, NATO is an anachronism for all the hype about a resurgent Russia and its obnoxious efforts to interfere in other states' democratic processes. Russia is, in fact, a declining power that poses no threat to to dominate Europe. Its population will decline over time. Its median age is rising rapidly and its economy remains mired in corruption and overly dependent on energy exports, which we'll get to in a second, who's kind of like other places. Yes, uh, whose long-term value will probably go down as well. Remember, we are talking about a country whose entire economy, the ultimate foundation of national power, is smaller than Canada, South Korea, and Italy. Putin, Individually, not together, right? I, 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 I'm assuming, yes. Um, I didn't fact. That makes check. a better this, story. That this way, is yeah. this is foreign policy, so I didn't fact check it, right? But <laughs> I should. I should. <laughs> um, Putin has played a weak hand well. This is again Walt speaking. Yeah. Putin has played a weak hand well, but the brutal fact is that Europe does not need the United States to protect it, especially considering that France and the United Kingdom also have nuclear deterrence of their own. End quote. And there are others in the U.S. national security establishment who come to the same conclusion. That's comforting to know that the uh, that not everybody is wearing their official uh, yeah, prescribed blindfold. Back, <laughs> back to the current situation with Ukraine. What is happening within Germany, the largest country in Europe and NATO member? Well, um, according to James Jackson, writing in Jacobin Magazine on February 4th, um, that's yesterday, despite Mm -hmm. the heated rhetoric, the debate in Germany is focused on a very small range of security options, whether Germany should deliver a small quantity of, quote, defensive weapons to Ukraine and allow German manufactured weapons in other countries to be delivered, or if Germany should focus on its role as regional mediator. This role was especially earned through the Minsk Protocol in 2014, when Germany, alongside France, attempted and failed to negotiate a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. Hmm. A recent decision to deliver a field hospital and 5,000 helmets pleased neither side. (laughs) Yet this debate is two-sided only among Germany's political and security elite. The public remains staunchly anti-militarist and perhaps surprisingly sympathetic to Russia. 
a massive 73% majority oppose delivering weapons to Ukraine, and a similar figure support finishing the Russia to Germany natural gas pipeline called Nord Stream 2. Most are generally skeptical that Russians will invade Ukraine or cut off Germany's gas supply. Despite the best efforts of the German security establishment in a myriad of Atlanticist groups, mm-hmm. quote, deterrence through stockpiling weapons is seen with similar suspicion. Polls show that Germans oppose increasing defense spending to meet NATO's targets. I am so glad that you that you ferreted that out and you have a story because if you if you listen to PBS and CNN and NPR, it's yeah. well, Germany's saying some confused things because, you know, it's a transition from Merkel. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of dipping their toe in the water of you know in, in international policy and decision making. So uh, but we'll just let them be for the time being because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, sure they don't. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly public aching for war. No, it's the it, the German public is not, and probably it, that's widespread throughout Europe too. I, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, itching for war after the First World War, <laughs> yeah. got dragged into it reluctantly. Right, right. So, hmm. so yeah. what about Ukraine itself? Is, is there a popular demand to fight the Russians, or at least? Do they feel threatened by Russia? Well, let me answer that, Jim, by uh, quoting extensively from an interview of Richard Sakwa, who is professor professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom and author of Frontline Ukraine, Crisis in the Borderlands. Uh, He was interviewed in the January 26th edition of Jacobin. Um, Sakwa says this, I traveled through the Donbass in 2008, which is the the industrial area in extreme Mm -hmm. eastern Ukraine that now uh, Russia controls, right? It used to be in the Ukraine. And you'd see painted in the Donbass on buildings everywhere, no to NATO. Whereas now we've seen the WikiLeaks State Department documents published in 2010 and 11, a couple of years later, showing endless messages from the US ambassador in Kiev saying, Ultimately, people wanted NATO. This was a fanciful and artificial idea from the beginning, assuming that the choice was simple and unequivocal toward the West. Russia was then framed as holding Ukraine back geopolitically, developmentally, and above all in terms of democracy. It's a much more complex situation, as opinion polls Mm -hmm. even show today. Gerard Toll and his colleagues have shown that an astonishingly high proportion, 30 or 40% of the population, even with Crimea and Donbass not included, which is uh, very pro-Russian, right? In, in mm-hmm. a lot of Russian speakers in those two areas, um, even without them being included, 30 or 40% of the population want close relations with Russia. Some even want to join the Eurasian Economic Union. So this is a divided country. So it's wrong to assume that they have opted unequivocally for NATO. But this choice has been imposed since the emergence of the neo-nationalist government in February 2014, after the Maidan events, when the pro-Russian oligarch uh, Yanukovsky was overthrown Mm -hmm. in a coup actively supported by the US government. 
Yeah, and there, uh, there are all kinds of uh, drop-down menus from there. <laughs> yes. And how Ukraine became a, a, a topic in the 2016 presidential election. Right. So it begins to sound more complicated than the corporate media is telling us. And that should be no surprise, right? Truly. Um, what's that, Sue? I just said truly. I yeah. Mean, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's, we have been, we've been seeing in our corporate media, I mean, propaganda, the propaganda dialed to the maximum on right. Russia and Ukraine. It, it's, they're, they're, they're not believable. Um, mm-hmm. um, and again, the interview with Richard Sakwa, um, he says, so the first factor is that there's a very highly mobilized, radicalized minority within Ukraine, which holds policy hostage. Second, this minority, though there's a silence about some of its more odious extremes, meaning neo-Nazis, right, mm-hmm. in this minority, <laughs> Uh, is supported geopolitically by the Western powers, by what I call the Atlantic power system. It's mm-hmm. not just NATO, but scandalously, in my view, the European Union, which really hasn't upheld its own principles. Current Ukraine President Zelensky has been even worse than Ukrainian President in 2014 Poroshenko in undermining mm-hmm. Russian language, cultural, and media institutions in Ukraine and for pushing a distorted view of history. So in a sense, external and internal factors have coalesced. But despite all that, opinion polls show Ukrainians are still divided, although there has been a coalescence in favor of defending Ukrainian state sovereignty. In fact, Ukrainians in general are a very peace-loving people. That's why, as as are all people, (laughs) let's put it that way, right? That's why it's so catastrophic that now we're talking about war and conflict. But all this is part of a bigger picture, a second Cold War. If it is indeed a genuine Cold War, then we need to learn how to manage conflict. I'm arguing, this is um, uh, uh, Sakwa arguing this. Um, I'm arguing that today we're in a slow motion Cuban Missile Crisis, Jim, as you had referred. Um, in Sorry, October, I stole your thunder. Oh, no, it's not my thunder. Um, no, this is exactly right. In October 1962, it was resolved peacefully. Jupiter missiles were taken out of Turkey, and the Soviet Union removed its missiles, and the United States promised not to invade Cuba. That is ultimately what Putin wants, and Boris Yeltsin before him and before that Mikhail Gorbachev always argued the expansion of the Atlantic military security system to Russia's borders was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So this question has been dragged on, dragging on for 30 years now. Putin said in his 2018 State of the Nation speech, Mm -hmm. quote, you didn't listen to us then, so listen to us now, end quote, when he announced hypersonic missiles and so on. That's the background to where we are today. So Putin and Russia want the U.S. uh, wanted in the 62 missile crisis to be secure from an aggressive military attack. Yeah, that that sums it up, Jim. And um, there are so many parallel currents and trends going on here that it's it's really, really hard to imagine that there is a coherent central story, you know, 
Russians are any are not any more happy with Putin than Ukrainians are, regardless if they're, you know, Polish people living in the Ukraine in the east or, you know, primarily, you know, ethnic Russians that are on the other side of the Dniester on the east side. And, uh, you know, Alexander Navalny would be very happy to see, to, um, you know, have have Putin neutralized. Yeah, but it's I'll just say this, that Navalny, who has really kind of propped up here in the West. Um, oh, okay. he, he's he's not very pop. I mean, he's got a one percent popularity rating. And no Russia. kidding. Yeah, it's very okay. Low. So he's sort of so he's sort of a um, <laughs> Gallego. <laughs> Yeah, Venezuela, but in the it, Soviet Union, that's in the, exactly, exactly yeah. right. And um, and so you know, and we could speculate. I mean, I I, I would speculate that the um, there's several reasons why this is all being hyped up by the media right now. And I think um, mm-hmm. one is probably um, a, a wag the dog scenario with President right. Biden, whose popularity and job approval rating is only slightly higher than Trump's at this point, which is unimaginable. Um, Well, and that, but it's true. And um, the other thing would be, is that, well, we got out of Afghanistan, that forever war um, (laughs) and and our military industrial complex is wedded to perpetual war because it means profits for the arms makers. Right. And for the whole, the whole ecosystem of our military industrial complex, and so, well, yeah, maybe maybe we'll start another war and, you know, so we can keep that going. Yeah. Um, and that's an excellent point at, that, you know, the prior administration, the one that was even less popular than our current president, got on, uh, had this shtick that he was always pushing about NATO's not carrying their weight. We want to sell more weapons. We want people to pay for our products. We want to have a bigger market for you know nuclear for american arms manufacturers and so that to me that's Hmm. that was destabilizing in itself yeah but he was the transactional president wasn't that the polite term for it you give me what i want and i'll think about what you want right right yeah so anyway but you know that's that's speculation on my part about the, you know, and the, I, I think the, um, what else comes into play here is that, and, and I know we've covered this and maybe we don't exactly all agree on this, but I, I think the whole Russia, Russia, Russia thing, the Russia gate stuff mm-hmm. with Trump, um, personally, I feel that was, uh, a, a very demented, um, you know, false kind of narrative um that's being perpetuated by people in the national security establishment that just hate russia right they want to go to war with russia they're itching to go to war with russia wow and and i think that um i sure hope that's not the case well there 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 are people who are like that in the u.s uh security state absolutely no question um and uh because this doesn't make any rational sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's we're going to get to some pros, some ways in which this whole thing, you know, could move toward a much more peaceful resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, I don't think there are some people a, a, a loud minority in this country mm-hmm. 
just like in, in Ukraine, um, are itching for war and uh, for various different reasons. Right. And the, and the mainstream media is allying themselves with that, even NPR. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I listened to a full show the other day on Thursday. You're a brave man, Mark. <laughs> well, they were they had a special report. They had a reporter in Kiev, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't hear any kind of discussion about, you know, about uh, you know that there are people a, a, a sizable division within the Ukraine about all of this um, and about Russia, and nothing about what might be, you know, some of the rational motives for Russia to be, um, uh, you know, scared of NATO, right? Um, and which I think is per- perfectly commonsensical without even getting into the virtue of Putin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. virtue has nothing to do with this. It's about what's, what's their national interest, right? And just yeah. like we're supposed to look at our national interests. So um, yeah, it was a, it, kind of interesting in my want my readings just that the distance of from nate from the russian troops to ukraine was like 200 whatever kilometers yeah mm-hmm. i mean they weren't they're not like sitting like right at the door they're, right so i can't remember that so that's less than 200 miles right that's like kilometers like two-thirds of that anyhow yeah yeah something but like the that distance from saint peter's Meanwhile, the distance from um, St. Petersburg, the Russian city, to the NATO force, NATO installations or whatever, is like a hundred. So, so, and I just saw something else in the stuff I was reading that um, how did that go? That the oh shoot, I just I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, Oh, well, okay. I remember the rest of that, but anyhow, it just, it just, it's hard to, I mean, really, I mean, I admire Jim that you've got all this geopolitical where the countries are Baltic States. I couldn't have listed them in a million years. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay. I mean, it's just, well, we, we, right. we, we point well, in our, in our, in our awareness. I mean, it's, it's just, we're really lambs to the slaughter as far as we don't really know what's going on. I mean, I didn't know that Ukraine was still at war in one part of the country and mm-hmm. after, I don't know, whatever was going on. And, and so, I mean, just trying to, I really, if I wasn't on the show, I probably wouldn't have read a thing except <laughs> I was always looking for, there must be another side to the story because you can't have a story that's that uniform Mm-hmm. On and on and on. I mean, you have to look at, I mean, at one point, wasn't Ukraine like the bad guy as far as democracy goes? Because right. they're trying, they're corrupt. Absolutely. And they're to offer, oh, they're, I can't remember as far as. Just it, think Paul Manafort. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, so that too. Trying to get some quid pro quo. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way it looked, you know. At one point in time, that was all you heard about Ukraine was like, well, gosh, you know, that's why we shouldn't impeach over Ukraine. And we've got an oil company that's paying $50,000 to Biden's kid. And it's mm-hmm. like, ah, yeah, if only <laughs> that that right. would be easier to excuse. Well, yeah, my, well anyhow, it's just it, I mean, we're just it, I, I don't get it. I mean, 
uh, well, uh, I, I, I think it, I think it's helpful to remember that some of this is a lot of diversion, right? A, a lot yeah, of sleight absolutely. of hand and, um, you know, the situation in Ukraine, I know it's maybe oversimplification, but um, Yanukovych was a, a rich oligarch, okay, who controlled a lot of the economy of the Ukraine, but he was pro-Russian, right? And yes. so he was overthrown, I, I forget what, it was the Orange Revolution, right, so-called, the Maidan, oh, which, yeah. which really way was- way back, I remember that. Yeah, that was 19, or 2014, right? And, 2014. Um, and, and so that brought in a, a more pro-Western mm-hmm. oligarch into office, okay? So you got, you got, you know, none of this is all that democratic, right? Um, you've got some very wealthy men and it depends upon which, you know, who who they favor. Um, and now, you know, the they actually elected a comedian, right? Um, uh, oh, well, the uh, uh, who yeah. is kind of in way over his head um, and uh, has been repressing kind of Russian. You know, Ukraine is kind of half Russian, half Ukrainian speaking, right? Right. And um, and Ukrainian and Russian apparently are very close. They're different languages, but very close together. And so, and there's this long common history that they have. It is notable to 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 um, realize that Putin has never said he wanted to take over Ukraine and make Ukraine again a part of the Russian state. He has said that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, okay? In other words, they have this really long, I, I, don't, I don't, like who wants, U- Ukraine is really a basket case. Everything I've been reading economically is a back basket case. Mm-hmm. And why would Russia, which is not very strong itself, why would they want to take over another basket case, right? That's just asking for trouble. And what it, it keeps coming back to the realization that even before World War II, um, uh, when Napoleon invaded Russia, right? Um, And that that the Russians do not like being invaded. I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, any other explanation. And they want to be secure in their borders, right? They don't want to be invaded again. So they've done lots of different things in order to prevent invasion, right? So they created the Warsaw Pact because they felt like NATO was going to come after them. Um, And, uh, you know, the European countries did invade Russia, uh, the the whites that they were called, um, Mm -hmm. to counter the uh, Bolsheviks, right? And at the, you know, actually during World War I and right after that. Um, And they, they, those were, government troops from European countries, and I think even from the United States. So um, when when was the last time Russia invaded the United States? Never. That, that's right. Yeah, well, it, they had Fort Ross and <laughs> San Francisco Bay, but I don't think a shot was ever fired. Right. Well, we, we <laughs> bought Alaska from them, right? So I, yeah. as and if we paid them on time. It, yeah, right. We didn't <laughs> have to have German banks bail us out. Right, right. But but it, but the point being is that uh, if you're invaded by a country, you, 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 you tend to sort of be skeptical. And when, you know, like you said earlier, Jim, that... 
uh, Hitler and uh, Stalin had signed a peace agreement right. um, that uh, Hitler then, I don't know, maybe less than a year later, uh, violated, right? And just sure. Uh, I think it was it was Molotov that that signed. I, I think um, so. And the same guy Ribbon, that Ribbentrop 19, and Molotov. Yeah, Ribbentrop, yeah. yeah, exactly. So so Molotov knew what was going on, and he saw the results of a deal that went south. Right. And twenty seven million Russians die. Yeah, and and the, yeah, the Soviet Union did not invade Germany, but Germany invaded the Soviet Union despite their peace treaty. And so then, then you have NATO massing on your Western side, like you say, Sue, mm-hmm. um, you know, 100, 200 miles away, um, you know, that there's weapons pointed, you know, right at Moscow and St. Petersburg and, you know, all the Russian installations, I'm sure. Um, you know, we got upset with, with a few missiles in Cuba. They, they've got a, a lot more significant military close by and this history of being invaded. So it's not a real stretch in my mind to think that that's, you know, kind of their principal, their principal uh, deal. And when they asked to join NATO, Putin had asked to join NATO as well um, in order to not to, uh, you know, not for anti-communism, but to to make sure war doesn't break out in Europe again, because lots of Russians die when that happens and lots of Germans will die and lots of Poles. And um, there's no, there's nothing good that will come of that. And Russia's not that strong. Uh, They're they're not. Um, So uh, despite. I've come across some, some, well, there's some reading I did as far as how well prepared they would be at this point in time versus really how ready the Ukraine or NATO are as far as in the situation that came across. Something. Oh yeah. No, there, in fact, NATO is not ready to do this either. Right. Mm-hmm. That um, I, I did read somewhere I've read in a few places that the, the hundred thousand or 150,000 troops Russia allegedly has on the border of Ukraine, they've been there for almost a full year. Mm-hmm. I saw something that convenient time to play that card. Yes, and appeal to people's um, amygdala. And and they and, and oh, oh, I'll get yeah. Oops, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, add to that 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 um, one of the things that would signal a an invasion by Russia would be where there's war material and medical material that would be pushed forward to the front, right? You, you need those supplies mm-hmm. because if you're gonna invade, there's gonna be a lot of casualties and you need a lot of equipment right there and right then, that mm-hmm. hasn't happened. Russia has not Ooh. forward moved those sorts of things. The troops That's are there, interesting. but the troops have been there for a long time. And yeah, park the tanks. <laughs> well, right. Don't be prepared for the consequences. The readings you used, that in 2017, I was just starting to read that, um, that the level of troops at that point, that, that this is a lesser amount than in 2017. So it's yes. not like you're- Right, wow, which- Right, we're, we're, we're being- is an outlier. We're, we're being- might on, you know, Go ahead, Mark. Oh, no, I, I was just gonna say, we're being lied to by our government and, and the media is just passing that along un, unchallenged completely unchallenged. So um, this, this is, this is mm-hmm. not a good thing for us either. 
Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand. And you hide from my eyes. And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Like Judas of old, you lie and deceive. A world war can be won. You want me to believe? But I see through your eyes, and I see through your brain, like I see through the water that runs down my drain. You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire, and then you sit back and wait. When the death count gets higher, you hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. He's thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled. Fear to bring children into the world. For threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. How much do I know? But to talk out of turn, you must say that I'm young. You must say I'm unlearned. But there's a one thing I know: I'm younger than you. That even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Let me ask you one question: Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll. All the money you made will never buy back your soul, and I hope that you die 
And your death will come soon I'll follow your casket By the pale afternoon I'll watch while you're lowered Down to your deathbed And I'll stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead That was Masters of War by Bob Dylan. You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, Live streaming at the same time on 1055kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash vop hyphen montana all spelled out or searchable on spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio by and for the 99 percent you know you know sharing with you all the stuff that you're bringing up i feel like i'm listening to an am golden oldies (laughs) <laughs> radio, radio station because oh, this has all happened before it's 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 a song i heard but f- have forgotten about right you know, and bringing up yanukovych and remember how he was poisoned or he got a lousy complexion uh, orange revolution um a, a good friend of mine from texas ironically moved to ukraine because because uh, he married a woman that lived there so hmm. you know he saw it up close and personal Oh yeah, I thought it was thoroughly stupid. What 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 did you think was stupid? Yeah, I missed that. Well, it's difficult to know because people in Texas have a totally different vision of politics <laughs> from what we know, and um, you know he's a product of his environment. But if, if, he there there was no discernible cause. There was no Alamo to him that would get him riled up. And he ultimately had health problems and moved back without his wife. You know, the whole thing is bizarre. I know it's cop out, but I, I have a very hard time stringing all the pieces together and seeing a coherent whole. Right. Right. And, and this is where, you know, the speculation and maybe conspiracy ther- theories mm-hmm. really start to flourish because um it doesn't make it i mean the official line that we've been given doesn't make sense but for example um it's come out recently that james baker promised gorbachev when when he was secretary of state for you know bush number 41 there will be no eastern expansion of nato full stop end of discussion it, right. uh, but in the 90s, something else happened. Different administration, one that yep. you'd presume would be uh, less warmongering and yeah. intrusive, but strange things happen. And there we are in Kosovo and in yeah, Bosnia. And, you know, in a parallel way, even earlier, uh, U.S. Secretary of State George Kennan, okay? Who oh, was, yes. <laughs> he was, he, he is credited with being the architect of deterrence, right? Mm-hmm. With the Soviet Union. He said it would be a blunder to expand NATO to Russia's border. I mean, Absolutely. He said it back, back in the 1950s. And, mm-hmm. um, and what did NATO do in the 1990s? You know, 
expanded Russia's borders. And here we are. Right. Right. Um, I think the Russians, you know, given what uh, Sakwa had said before, it seems like the Russians have been pretty patient. I mean, not that they have much choice um, because they're except for their nuclear weapons are militarily inferior um, and economically certainly inferior. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they've been biding their time and Putin just sort of through three different leaders They've been from Gorbachev on, they've been biding mm -hmm. their time. And, and, um, and here's, you know, Joe Biden, <laughs> um, you know, uh, who his, lived through this. Yes. You and, know? and, and, and been, have having, you know, he's what not he, Marco Rubio, you know, he was there in the seventies. Yeah. He's been there since 73. So he needs, he needs to stand up and say, you know, to say no, but I, I don't have any confidence that he will to his own, you know, uh, to those in the national security establishment right. that are pushing this. Yeah, I don't know how we avoided mentioning John Foster and Alan Dulles. We were about oh, as we nefarious as you can get. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just heard George Cannon, the wise old man. I thought. I thought too. Um, the the news. Was it today that um, Putin and Xi, uh, the chairperson yes. of China, yep. having are getting together in person at the Olympic Games and coming out with Iran? I guess they're they've got a cooperative agreement among them. And the whole idea of cooperative agreements, um, as opposed to the um, going at each other, whatever is going on on the Eastern Front of Russia, that the cooperative agreements that are they're trying to spawn, um, saying I mean all three of them were saying okay the calling out the um, U.S. U.K. and Australian agreement military agreement, um, saying that NATO shouldn't you know, should back off in Eastern Europe, and also their their gas line deal of um, Russia um, providing their gas lines to China, that mm -hmm. they specified that too. It seemed like um, that that those, I mean, if, if we're wanting to be uh, a, a, a power or an influencer, um, it seems like, I mean, I really question, it's like there's a couple of different ways you can influence. I mean, you can go in there and say, well, we've got all the arms in the world. And a multi, you know, bigger military than the next fifty countries, or however that goes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or we could like see what people are interested in, see how we can help them, and then deal, increase our influence that way. I mean, if if we right. were doing that on our side of the globe, I mean, here we're holding up uh, like this democratic stronghold in Ukraine somehow, mm. and meanwhile we've had plenty of coups on our hemisphere. Yeah. We've destroyed any number of democratically elected leaders in our half of the hemisphere. Yeah. Oh, and absolutely. You could be working with what what their interests are. And now everybody's like, oh, gosh, now everybody's leaving these countries. And now we've got people in our country that are all lit up about we're being invaded by people who can't stay home. You know? Because we destroyed their home. Well, truly. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so... It's just, it just seems so, I mean, here we're 
it's just holding up one one democracy sort of and and we've destroyed so many right uh, uh, well and well, well that, ukraine oh, go ahead mark i was just going to say sue that to, to me that says that democracy really is not a serious consideration for u.s foreign policy mm-hmm. and um it's other things and uh, frankly i think i've read some other kind of uh, speculation or, or, you know, sort of theories about what's going on now. Uh, One of them that keeps coming back is, and I think there's a lot of truth to this. Since World War II, when when we were the only major industrial country left intact, right? Um, Everyone else had had been destroyed or massively, you know, uh, harmed during the war. Um, that we took on the trappings of empire and, um, mm-hmm. and we have conducted ourselves as an empire ever since then. That's not, you know, the, the, the sort of fig leaf for that is that, oh, we're, we support democracy. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a lie, basically. Mm-hmm. That's been repeated over and over again. Um, we support, you know, the good, the good guys, right? Well, that's, that's a lie. That's been, you know, debunked time and time again. It's really about empire. And I think that because the military, our, our U.S. military has failed to win military engagements time and time and time again, that, uh, you know, this may be some of the last gasp of an establishment that depends upon having empire. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that they, they, they want to try to prove themselves once again. We failed in Afghanistan. We failed in Vietnam. We failed mm-hmm. in Iraq. You know, the list is long. We succeeded in Grenada. Uh, <laughs> I have to be fair. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know. Th- and we th- got Nordiega out of uh, Panama. A, a Panama, right. Okay. And he was our guy to begin with anyway. So um, exactly. that almost doesn't count. But, you know, even on Absolutely. their on their own level, the, you know, the U S military has failed miserably and not because of the people in the military, not because of the, you know, the soldiers and the sailors and, and everyone else, it's the leadership and it's the mission to defend empire above everything else. And so I think what Mm -hmm. you're going at Sue is really saying we need to reorient our, national foreign policy toward uh, away from empire and toward something that helps build everybody up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it, I, I'm glad you brought up the lens of history and how a lot of what we're seeing today is a reflection of things that have happened in the past. For example, um, the, the, the land between the Russian border and the German border is filled with, uh, you know, complex cultures and different societies. And um, some of them were sympathetic to the Germans in the Second World War, like Romania was a fascist state, Hungary was a fascist state, uh, and the Ukraine lined up with the Germans during, you know, during the push east toward Moscow and Stalingrad. And consequently, in in following decades, they got they got chided when there was a good excuse for it. You remember the the Hungarian protests, and I think it was fifty six or fifty four. Yep. Fifty six. Thank you. Okay, 
yep. should have stuck on my first guess. And everybody remembers Prague Spring in 68. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, and when, um, you know, Ceausescu got in trouble in Romania, um, the Soviet Union just said, okay, so long. It's been good. Nikolai and Elena, too bad. But other the all the other countries that, that have a more that have a stronger Slavic tradition that's aligned with Russia, and they were sympathetic to Russian goals, um, you know they, they they got pretty light treatment. And uh, you know, at the end of World War II, there were a lot of empires that kind of had to do a little uh, house cleaning and restructuring. The U.S. not so much. We pretty much held them on to what we had. Russians the same way. Maybe this is another purge, another, you know, re reawakening of, uh, you know, political and economic realities. Can only hope. Yeah, it sure would be nice. And, and it's uh, thank you for bringing up um, Central America and, you know, Southern Command, because it was an excellent biography of Smedley Butler. You know, when one of Nick's heroes, right? That, that that came out a week or two ago, and you know, and there was a guy who saw the ugly face of what America represented to the rest of the world, right. and he didn't mince words. No, no, you can't say there isn't any such thing as a good marine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he he was a marine general, and he said, yeah. That, he said that the, the, the our mission as Marines, as a U.S. military overseas, is to make the world safe for profits. Right? That's yeah, like, he said something like that. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Which is that's even difficult to get away with saying today, in this woke world that we live in. You right. know, back in the twenties and thirties, that 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 was that was apostasy. Good for him. And, you know, Mick, Mick tells the story uh, pretty well um, that, which I didn't know until he told it, but um, he said that um, there was during the uh, Great Depression, there was oh, a group yeah. of U.S. military generals and, and other officers who wanted to have a coup uh, against Roosevelt. Oh, yes. And um, they tried to enlist Smedley Butler, General Butler, mm -hmm. uh, into their conspiracy. Well, he was the one that blew the whistle on him. Right. One. And then I think it was right after that, he came out with that statement about, you know, the, yes. the, the mission of the U.S. military is to make the yeah, world safe. That's a fascinating period with a lot of history that should be more widely known. For yeah. example, yep. um, the Bonus Army during the Depression and the veterans camping out Smedley Butler went out there to address them and to tell them, hang, hang tight, men. You're doing the right thing. I'm behind you completely. You've got my full And like a week or two later, Douglas MacArthur, the man's man that he was, puts on his jodhpurs and his fancy boots, climbs on a horse, then races through the bonus army like it was San Juan Hill. Right. And and he was ably assisted by um, a young officer named Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who became very notable for being a man of the people and the guy that made America prosper in the 50s. 
Yep. Yep. But yeah. I, yeah, I remember the America First Party because the principal money and energy and organizing it was the DuPont family in Delaware. Mm. And people, and the joke was, um, we don't know what the you know America First Party is, but the DuPonts are behind it. So uh, it's like cellophane. Yeah, you can see right through it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, we, and and it, the the father of um, Bush forty one. I don't know how many waspy names he has before you get to his surname. Can't keep track of them all. But when the book uh, about Butler was was being promoted and the author was being interviewed, people said, well, what about Bush and his activity in Germany? He said, yeah, well, you know what? He didn't have any time for America first because he was full time hard on, um, you know, you know, doing things in Nazi Germany. And he thought, well, we don't need Nazism over in the United States. I've already got something going on here that's keeping me busy. So he, huh. just, he, he never became the figure that he was expected to be because uh-huh. he was preoccupied with his own shenanigans. Yeah. One thing as far as, I mean, our, our, what we're doing in the world is that, I mean, if we're trying to, okay, so if we're trying to work on our climate and we're trying to work around the world so that mm-hmm. like, that one thing right, um, it just seems like there should be some room. I mean, for one thing, war is like one of the worst things you can do for your whole ecology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and Russia I... is being what's going on as far as all the percolating up of methane and who knows what. Right, right. Oils. I mean, it seems like and China, even though they weren't at the last summit or whatever we're are saying hey despite everything else you know we're, we're on board with that it just seems mm-hmm. like th- this is really old school and um and and there's more at stake than just that's bigger than our particular true yeah. Um, yeah the true catastrophe is <clears throat> climate yeah. so i guess i throw that in um it's just so yeah. aggravating that's a wound up all this crap i'm part i'm from around the air but stuff, you know that's that a methane was, source too mm. yeah a bad thing um it just seems like um we're looking for something bigger than like tat for tat or what for what i mean yeah the straight guns it's, it, yeah. it's useful to remember that from the russians that i got to know really well because they came over to the u.s to be aerospace engineers hmm. they said Russia really messed up with their ignorance to environmental degradation. After Chernobyl, people said, this is enough. Mm-hmm. We won't take it any longer. We're not, it's, you failed us. You failed the country. And like 18 months later, the big shakeup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we have one last piece to go through here. And that is, suggestion of where this Russia-Ukraine thing could go peacefully so that we can focus our attention on more pressing problems in the world than, mm-hmm. um, than, than which oligarch is in charge of Ukraine, right? Um, right. So, um, and, you know, again, this is from Richard Sakwa. Um, 
He said, foreign policy should always be a balance between interests and values. If Russia was just willy-nilly wanting to invade and suppress Ukrainian democracy, then I'd be the first to support Ukraine. But that's not what we're talking about. Putin's so-called revisionism is not of an Adolf Hitler sort. This endless, even implicit reductio ad Hitlerium, which I mm-hmm. never heard that phrase before, but that's re- yeah. reducing everything. Oh, he's just a Hitler. Um, is just nonsense in this case, uh, Sakwa is saying. When Putin came to power, he even said Russia would join NATO. The elite and the leaders in Russia are rational. They're not trying to recreate an empire. They're simply saying, look, our back is to the wall. Listen to us. The solution is very simple. Neutrality for Ukraine. No, no one is taking it over. Putin has supported the Minsk II agreement, which is a framework for the return of the Donbass to Ukrainian sovereignty. So where is the empire in that, end quote? Yeah. Um, what are the prospects of a negotiated end to these hostilities of nuclear armed nations, which has well, been a topic for decades? It, it has, yes. Um, so just in this case with Russia, Ukraine, right? Uh, R- R- uh, Richard Sakwa concludes in his January 26th interview in Jacobin, Uh, He said, there's talk of a new Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin summit, which hasn't happened yet, possibly as early as this coming week, which I very much welcome. And negotiations are important in all of this. My view is it's 50-50. I think people haven't understood that we were lucky in October 1962 because we had basically sensible leaders, above all Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy played a really outside, outsized role in all that, and back channels and so on. <clears throat> I think there's almost none of this now, and that we're closer to a genuine conflict. The West, and of course the British, are just blundering in there, adding fuel to the flames. Even the Germans are not giving overflight permission for British forces and equipment flying to Ukraine. I think it could go either way. The Russians can't just stand down now without anything, And the West is offering almost nothing. Mm -hmm. At the margins, they are engaging, which is good. Making some minor offers, also good. But this isn't on the necessary scale. The Russians are now saying we need to go back to the Gorbachev agenda of sorting out a European peace order. Here, here. You mentioned that each country can make their choice. But the other half of the peace order established in 1990 was that security is indivisible. The Russians are saying, guys, where's our security? We've been left on the outside. Now we're closer to war. I don't think that means an occupation of Ukraine. More probably, it would mean long-distance artillery, airstrikes, and so on to try to degrade Ukrainian forces and get the West into a secure serious negotiations. So far, they've been going through the motions, but there has to be some sort of declaration. The Cuban crisis was resolved by concessions so both sides could save face. Today, we need not just face-saving, but substantive moves, end quote. Yeah, here, here. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, You know, Sakwa really, really nails it. Yeah. And, and he, he wasn't the only one coming up with this kind of view, too. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that the foreign policy, uh, there's a, n- numerous articles. They said, uh, 
there was one article I couldn't get through the paywall that was entitled, uh, there's no way Russia can occupy Ukraine. They, they're, it's, they're unable to do that mm-hmm. in actuality. And so um, why would they want to do that? I mean, and, and, and neither can the U.S. for that matter, right? Right. So, um, so it's, you know, this is a lot of bluster. And, and if you feel moved to oppose any U.S. instigation of war in the Ukraine, you may consider joining a protest today, Saturday, Saturday February 5th, sponsored by codepink.org forward slash Russia. Missoula's event just finished before our broadcast. So, um, oh. yes. <laughs> so if you want, go to codepink.org front slash, forward slash Russia to find one near you. Yeah. Medea Benjamin has been on Democracy Now! all week and mm-hmm. has a very perceptive and prescient remarks about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, so there, there is goodness over here. We're not, you know, we're not all patriots. Blind so, patriots. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think I'm a patriot. I'm a patriot too. <laughs> yes. But not, now, we're not blind. We're not blind. It's okay to be a patriot now that Brady's not there and they're rebuilding. <laughs> Yeah, I think Anthony, believing anything Anthony Blinken says unchallenged right. is not patriotic. Sorry. I I grow disappointed with him because when, when he was appointed, I thought, okay, now we're back to using professionals instead of con men and braggarts of, you know, Blinken has a seasoned pro. He's always been the guy one job title removed from the nexus of power. And he's perfectly prepared for this. And somehow he doesn't come off very well. No, he's, he's completely wrong. Right. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's, he's one of the ones pushing for war here. So, yeah, I know he, well, he isn't Peter Navarro or Mike Pompeo. So, but you that's know, a that's, good thing. that's a matter of style. I, I, <laughs> I think it's just a matter okay. of style. So, wow. but, but anyway, we can disagree about that and be okay. Yeah. Well, so do you think it's time to talk about that other grand success in our country? <laughs> How, uh, what is the current news? Yeah. Imagine we have something to say about COVID. We do as always, <laughs> uh, despite 14 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the United States, the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now at a falling rate of about 357,000 cases a day on average, falling from over 800,000 cases per day, which was by far the highest rate for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. About 20% of the total COVID cases in the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic have occurred in the past 30 days with the Omicron variant. And 7% of all U.S. deaths from COVID has occurred in the past month. Sue? Well, but in Montana, I mean, we're we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Yeah, I'll get to that in in just a a minute here. Yep. 
Um, so, so, you know, the, the Omicron is not as serious, but boy, it's still serious. 7% of all our deaths in this country have occurred in the last 30 days. That's, um, that's the, that's a high percentage. Um, the highest per capita rates of COVID infection today in the world are in Israel and some European nations, with the U.S. now falling to one of the lowest infection rates per capita. Um, Israel is considered to be uh, one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, while Europe is the capital of vaccine mandates and passports. At over 900,000 deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of Columbus, Ohio. According to Kaiser Health News on June 24th, life expectancy across the country plummeted by nearly two years from 2018 to 2020. So we're not even including 21 and 22. Uh, the largest decline since 1943 when American troops were dying in World War II, according to the study. But while white Americans lost 1.36 years, black Americans lost 3.25 years, and Hispanic Americans lost 3.88 years. Over the two years included in the study, the average loss of life expectancy in the U.S. was nearly nine times greater than the average in 16 other developed nations, whose residents can now expect to live four and a half or so years longer than Americans. Compared with their peer countries, their peers in other countries, Americans died not only in greater numbers, but at younger ages during this period, end oh. quote. The U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world and for 20% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, this is oh, Yeah, that, this is um, very disturbing <laughs> at a minimum. We've, you know, Mark, you and I have been looking at the same data for months, years. Yeah. And there's no, what the change has been that the trend lines continue to follow whatever arc they were on in the beginning. The, the, the only difference I see is that um, a year or two ago, if black Americans were doing horribly and yeah. now it's Hispanic Americans. So those there, so, so there was an inflection point there sometime and Hispanics came out of, well, I don't want to use a term ahead, but uh, a larger value and, what what could be causing that? Well, I it it comes it comes to poverty, right? That yeah, um, people of color have higher rates of poverty, and people, uh, you know, the the poor take it in the neck in this country. Working class people mm -hmm. on the low end of the scale take it in the neck because lack of health insurance. We don't have a we right. don't have Medicare for all. Um, to, to cover people. Um, we don't. You're not getting your shots out to the people who are afraid to come forward. I, exactly. Oh, yeah. And and people are forced to go to work. You're uh, not letting any of the benefits go to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's, they can't survive. Yeah. This is, this is a class issue. And in this country, you know, the, the poor and working class, uh, higher percentage of people of color in that and that's so it doesn't right, right. make it any easier on the i mean i'm not saying that's 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 an easy thing but um you know this this is why this is one big reason i mean neoliberalism has set it up so that we you know our our healthcare system is not 
uh, equitable and it's not even very efficient, right? Um, Right. But it's very efficient at extracting resources in the name of health. Yeah. In, in the form of profits. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, in order to save money so I could raise a family, I use a bicycle for transportation exclusively for decades. Mm -hmm. And, 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 in that process, I got to know a lot of doctors really, really well. <laughs> and yeah. um, most of them were very unhappy with their jobs. And they'd bounce around, go to this hospital, this, this um, HMO, this, you know, organization. And um, we're very frustrated by their capacity to do their jobs and, yeah. and fulfill their obligation to serve in the Hippocratic Oath and felt like they were working for accountants that were telling them how to do their jobs. Right. Yeah, exactly. And we should, s- we staffing should, staffing mo- schedulers too. I, I, I think our, we should, mo- we should have a mobilization against neoliberalism. Oh, I, yeah. think, I think that would be very popular. And I think it would be, that's who our real enemy is, not Russia. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, it's, at some point, a lot of people that think that, um, you know, Hillary and Leon Panetta and, uh, and Hunter Biden are, are the nexus of evil that are, in, that are impoverishing 300 million people, um, they're, they're going to see maybe there's something else going on here. Yeah, well, we can hope. That's what this show is about, right? That's right. Hope. You're going to talk about what's going on in Montana too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, thank the, you. That was, thank you for grabbing my line. Well done. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, no, no that's okay. great. St- you know, hey, <laughs> it takes a woman to get things done on time and done right. So, um, according to the state of Montana COVID nineteen website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website. Montana has had 3,031 deaths from COVID, 55 over the past two weeks. This Montana death total is about equal to that of the town of Big Sky or Cutbank. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a decreasing rate of about 1,280 new cases a day. Fully, 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID, one quarter of Montana's. Mm. And there are currently 328 people hospitalized with the virus, up 44 from two weeks ago, straining Montana's hospitals and healthcare staff. We've been saying this since February, 2020. We'll keep saying it till the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash your hands and to get the vaccine if we're going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. Spoken like a true labor organizer. <laughs> Everybody make a commitment and see the, see the benefits, the shared sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do we have any more hopeful news, Mark? Well, um, this next story kind of depends on your perspective, I I suppose. Um, Justin Franz wrote in the Montana Free Press on February 2nd, um, uh, and this this has made national news, of course, right? 
Um, a large group of truckers is blocking the U.S.-Canada border with their vehicles north of Shelby, Montana, this week mm-hmm. to protest, protest a vaccine mandate for truck drivers who travel between the two countries. The blockade is an offshoot of a Canadian protest dubbed the Freedom Convoy that converged on Parliament Hill in Ottawa last Saturday to air grievances about the mandate and other pandemic policies of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The blockade just over the border in Coutts, Alberta, began over the weekend, according to Canadian law enforcement. A spokesperson for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP is our uh, the uh, acronym, uh, told Montana Free Press that what began as a peaceful protest has turned into a, quote, unlawful blockade that is hindering commerce and other services in the area. On Tuesday morning, RCMP officers ordered the drivers to stop blocking the highway just north of the border crossing. Some complied with the order, but others did not. The RCMP said those who con- continued could face fines and arrest. It's a fluid situation, RCMP Constable Patrick Lambert said Tuesday afternoon. In March 2020, the U.S.-Canada border was closed to non-essential travel in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. People involved in essential activities, such as truckers, have generally been able to cross the border freely to do their jobs. Starting January 15th of this year, however, Canada began requiring that truckers who cross the international boundary be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or be forced to quarantine after crossing. Unvaccinated truckers who are not Canadian citizens are turned away at the border under the new policy. On January 23rd, Canadian truckers began to converge on Delta, British Columbia, near Vancouver, Mm -hmm. and headed east toward Ottawa, arriving on Saturday. At the same time, smaller convoys sprang up across the country, including one near Coots on Saturday in support of the gathering in Canada's capital. Law enforcement said some drivers who partook in that event decided to park their vehicles at the border, impeding traffic and essentially bringing cross-border traffic to a halt. Protest participants have generally been peaceful across the country, though on Tuesday, there is a report of someone trying to ram an officer with a vehicle at the Coots border crossing. It's unclear if anyone was injured. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who has said he believes the protesters have legitimate concerns, condemned the violence as totally unacceptable. Politicians south of the border have generally been mum on the situation. Though on January 31st, Montana Senator Steve Daines stated on Twitter that he supported the protesters going to Ottawa. A Canadian citizen and permanent American resident, Kim Meyer of Billings, Montana, traveled to Sweetgrass on Saturday, where she and others stood near the international boundary in solidarity with protesters on the other side. Meyer was born in Canada, but has lived in Billings for 20 years and said she has not been able to visit her family in in Canada in two and a half years. She believes Canada's vaccination requirements have gone too far, and she dismissed politicians, including Trudeau, who have called the Freedom Convoy and its supporters a fringe group and a minority in the country. She said, quote, I'm frustrated that I have not been able to go home for two years. I just want to go home. Meyer added, it's not an anti-vaccination protest. It's (laughs) pro-freedom. Where have we heard that? (laughs) She estimated that a few hundred people came out to support the action north of the border, including permanent residents like her and local families that have been split by the border restrictions. 
The Canada Border Services Agency was urging travelers to and from Canada to avoid the Coot Sweetgrass Crossing. Besides halting trade at the border crossing north of Shelby, the blockade is having a major impact on the small community of Coots. Coots Mayor Jim Willett told CBC News that some kids were unable to get to school on Monday and mail delivery had been briefly halted because of the blockade. Willett added that he had no problem with peaceful protests, but that the blockade of the border had gone on too long. Uh, he said people in this village would like their freedom back, end quote. <laughs> I, I've been following the story very carefully because it, it turned out to be a very useful litmus test for um, the the coterie of people that react to my Facebook posts and and have a counter argument. And, um, and the people that voted twice for the man who was the minority selection in two presidential elections are saying, well, this is the most significant event since Gandhi's march to the sea. This is, you don't know anything about it in America because it's being ignored by the lamestream press. And I, and I would give them articles from, for example, the times of Israel, <laughs> not unfamiliar with civil unrest and, uh, and, from global news, you know, a Canadian source and there it <laughs> and the vitriol just flows and flows and flows. The tank car full of it uh, left the valve open and it's spilling in the streets. What have you heard, Sue? Oh, I've, um, I've tried to pick up on a little bit of it, but I'm just uh, I'll, I'm not into it, I guess, right now. Yeah. <laughs> How divided, who, I mean, just the whole premise of, of the divisions in our country. I mean, there's, I'm sure, plenty of people who are making a lot of money off of dividing our country in every which way. And That's right. I, I mean, to me, the criminal, the criminal behavior is the divisiveness itself. Yeah. As far as COVID goes, to have it land on COVID is, I mean, it's just, I mean, it just landed on some issues that really are common good is just right. put out, you know, out, out to pastures like, how, and, how can you, I mean, to me, that's the criminal. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, we needed, we really, as far as keeping up with cases, I mean, you're really on your own. It's like, I don't know. I saw this person, I sat next to them. They just called me, and now I don't know what to do. Should I do this or this? And right. And I, I mean, all this, it's it's a lot that the barn door is already open. Yes. And all the horses are out. And I don't know anybody, I mean, who's got like N95 masks coming to their house and, and you know, who will even wear them? Um, it's, it's just. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I, I wear N95 masks. Um, and I just, I got told today earlier that I, uh, that I was with someone who tested positive. Um, so hope, I mean, hopefully the mask work, but I'm going to have, I'm going to have to well, get tested here. How basically. long is your mask good for, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be good for like a shift. What's that? Eight, 12 hours. I think it's, I think it's long. I, I was, yeah, that sort I, of information. I is, have not been doing that. 
I am good Polish boy. Use, use, use till no more. Yeah. And, and right. And, and who knows? Right. That's a great question. How, how good is it if the electrostatic nature of it, how, Mm -hmm. how long does that last? I really, I really couldn't tell you. I don't think people know. I mean, this is the, it's a systemic breakdown. Right. And, and I think that the criminal part, I mean, that's what neoliberalism has brought us, right? Not deliberately, but incidentally. But I think the criminal part of it is, is where is the money being made in this? Okay. There's two, two places. One is in the vaccines. Okay. Those, mm-hmm. those companies are making money hand over fist. Okay. And so uh, I, my suspicion rests with this, the all vaccine thing. I'm thinking, hmm, okay, what's, you know, uh, you know, the Biden administration is caving into the drug companies. The other thing, the other place is in some of these, uh, especially like the CARES Act, which we've covered quite a bit, the federal government, you know, helped bail out uh, average American people, you know, substantially, but not not enough right they sure are bailing out wall street and and the financial markets right big time okay they made and the the billionaires are are making billions hand over fist right so you add that all up and it's kind of like yeah the average person is getting the shaft and the wealthy are making out like bandits yeah in my lifetime i've seen these existential threats become money-making opportunities. You know, the savings and loan scandal yeah. of Bush 41 yeah. um, served, the, you know, the thrifts and the banks of certainly the collapse of, you know, the tech bubble collapse didn't hurt, harm anybody except the, you know, cutting edge, you know, little guys. And the f- wonderful and famous uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, the real estate bubble, which was actually a lot more than that, but it's, you know, you, you look at the, at wealth moving from one population to another in the last couple of years, it's been, uh, you know, a dozen people around the world now have over half of all of the bookable assets of the entire planet. Yeah. And it wasn't that bad before. No, it's gotten worse. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Moving along here, I just need to mention this because this <laughs> this is like a weird connection, right? Um, between COVID, the vaccine mandates, the Canadian protests, and Russia, of all things, oh, come, yes. come together, <laughs> in a, come together in a story about a Canadian broadcast corporation news anchor speculating on air that Russia could be behind the Canadian trucker protest. I I I, I think that's I, I, that's a ridiculous thing that she said, but I think this is a real sign of the times. And that's CBC. That's the CBC. You know, that's a, that's, that's a bastion of responsible, restrained journalism, just like BBC right? or Deutsche Welle or the other things that we lamentably don't have to hang our hat on. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you have to go to OAN and Newsmax, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, we got a lot of these TLAs coming up, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, um, there is some good news and we'll go through this real quickly, but uh, 
Oh, go ahead. I just said yay. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been pretty unrelenting. Um, according to the Thrillist on February 1st, uh, quote, in December 2021, workers at a Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, made history as the first corporate-run Starbucks in the United States to unionize. Yay, Buffalo. Yay, Buffalo. Yeah, that's right. You won't let... So Which, they're not going to get buffaloed any longer by Starbucks. Yeah, and we should all shuffle off to Buffalo. Quickly after more Starbucks shops followed suit and reports surfaced that executives were trying to sway workers away from unionization. <gasps> really? Um, it appear, it <laughs> that appears that- never happened. I know, I'd- that's beyond the pale. It appears that Starbucks workers across the country found the union efforts more compelling. According to multiple reports, employees in 55 stores across 19 states are holding union elections. NPR reports that these 54 shops uh, are only part of the 9,000 stores that the corporation owns. They must have missed their math there, but... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So overall, it is not a large percentage of the stores, but the rapid growth of union efforts across the stores is a sign that labor organizing is growing more popular. And Starbucks is clearly worried. They are still filing appeals to challenge union votes at specific stores. Starbucks workers unionizing is also a significant shift within the food service industry. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, just 1.2% of food and drinking places were unionized in 2021. It shares the lowest industry unionization rates alongside finance and professional and technical services. Overall, just over 6% of the private sector workers in the U.S. were unionized in 2021. Experts say that as the movement to unionize Starbucks continues to grow, it will be more and more challenging for executives to prevent individual shops from voting to unionize. The labor movement is growing beyond your favorite chain coffee shop too. labor organizing is happening across several industries and and that's a wonderful wonderful thing yes and it reminds me of how the of you know minimum wage campaign the fight for 15 started in the seattle area where starbucks came from there you go with with a handful of people and it looked absolutely hopeless and very very skilled and persistent organizers you know, kept building, building, building. And now it's bad. It's nationwide. Yeah, Put there you ZZ go. Top. Yeah. And, and so to, to that end, uh, any, anyone um, who works uh, for Starbucks or any other workplace in our listening area, Western Montana, who is interested in organizing, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at, uh, this is the email address, westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's westernmtwa at gmail.com. Or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. Uh, and also there's a workshop, and this is uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, there's a workshop on an introduction to organizing where I am one of the trainers. 
This workshop is intended for workers who want to organize a union as well as electoral political organizing and tenant organizing. It's free and open to all who can make it, make all four dates at 6.30 p.m. And these are the dates, Thursday, February 10th, Sunday, February 13th, Thursday, the 17th, and Sunday, the 20th. And one last thing I want to add in uh, as an announcement for Missoulians, uh, the city of Missoula and the Missoula Housing Authority are sponsoring a community, a, a pair of community listening events. Um, and it's on um, housing displacement, which um, I have recently been uh, one who has been displaced for my housing, but uh, there are many, many others. And so what they wanna hear is people's stories and comments and solutions uh, to this. And if you go to the city of Missoula website, um, you can find uh, to sign up or the web link or the zoom link, I'm sorry. Oh, on great. On Tuesday, February 8th from noon till 1.30 PM or Thursday, February 17th from 6 to 7.30 PM. Great. So, so co-hosts that live peripatetic wandering lives will be able to get it anywhere family members expect him to be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, well, um, want to thank you, Sue, for being on and, yeah. and, and Jim, as always. Um, uh, and, and we'll, you know, we'll do this again sometime soon. Um, yes. And uh, um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs we have on the air. Just go to the website at 1055kfgm.org and you can make it there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, <laughs> so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. And please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.
left or right I'm just staying home tonight Getting lost in that hopeless little scream But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming to the USA